0: Welcome to the Kennedy Report. I'm Kennedy Hall. If you like this video, please like and subscribe and consider a donation to the Fatima Center. Visit Fatima.org for more information. Today we have a special interview with Pam Acker. How are you doing, Pam?
1: Doing great, thank you.
0: Good. Pam is the author of this book here called Vaccination, Catholic Perspective. I've read through most of it. I was reading through some of it last night. I've seen you speak a bunch at various Colby Center conferences. Primarily your work has been in evolutionary creation stuff. But you foray into vaccination. So before we continue and get into the meat and potatoes of vaccinations per se, how did you go from someone who was working in science labs and things to finding yourself not only advocating for traditional creation, which is controversial enough, but then going to somebody who actually advocates for, let's say, the truth about vaccines?
1: Well, there was a, a pivotal sort of moment where that all started probably about eight years ago. I met Hugh Owen, who is the founder of the Colby Center. So I was living in Virginia at the time. And a colleague of mine said, hey, you know, there's this conference on creation and evolution. You should come because I was teaching science to some sophomores at an all-boys school at the time. And his parish hosted Hugh and I, mm-hmm. I went and heard Hugh speak. And I actually I missed his first talk because I was like, I don't I don't need all that theology stuff. Like, I'm just going to go and hear the scientists speak. So, I went the next day, and he spoke so clearly and so plainly, and he identified some of the things I had already sort of intuitively understood as a person with an interest in biochemistry that you know some things just don 't add up when you talk about life coming from non life and especially if you talk about it coming about randomly. so he was saying all kinds of things that I had never heard before but but fit in with what I had already kind of come to realize you know was maybe questionable about evolution theory from a biological perspective. But then I heard Hugh speak. And when he spoke about what you have to believe about God, if you believe that he created through death and destruction and mutations and, you know, millions of years and the humans just sort of show up at the 59th minute of the 11th hour and we're really not that important in the cosmic scheme of thing, that it gives you a completely different conception of God than if you believe he created the world the way he said he did. And so I left that talk. Very angry, but um, very convinced that I had to reevaluate kind of everything that I had learned. That journey started about eight years ago, as I said, and I ended up speaking at the Colby Leadership Conference several years later. And I've traveled around the country, spoken with Hugh a couple of times uh, a year, usually. And then he asked me to look into vaccines probably four or five years ago. So this was actually all completely pre-COVID. But because I teach full-time, I did not have the ability to pick up another project. And I kept saying, I'll get to that, I'll get to that, I'll get to that. And um, as a man of faith, I know that you know that our Lord has funny ways of working sometimes. And so two years ago, he gave me time by breaking my ankle. (laughs) So so I was on the couch and and, uh, I said, well, Hugh, how how about that vaccine stuff now that I really have nothing to do? So I, I picked it up, uh, ran with it and did research kind of intermittently from about April of last year till uh, just even as we speak, I was, you know, doing more things this morning, kind of following up as people have questions about what's in the book or for, given a number of the interviews and sort of preparing for these things. So it's really been, uh, been exciting. And I never imagined actually when I started reading this that any writing this that anybody would ever read it. So. <laughs> <laughs> that we've sold out of the book like three times and I'm talking to you right now is still a little bit wild.
0: Well, I, um, I'm friends, well, virtually with Steve from Census Fidelium. He's promoted your book and I published a couple books as well. So when he was telling me how your book was doing, I was like, wow, that's doing really well, which is amazing because people are getting information they otherwise wouldn't right. have. So congratulations right. on that. Well, thank you. So let's dive into the table of contents here because there's a lot. and We have about an hour. So we'll try and get through as much as possible. Can you please give us a brief history of vaccination as an idea?
1: Sure. So vaccination is credited as starting with Edward Jenner. He is supposed to have noticed that dairy maids that caught cowpox were afterwards protected from smallpox. And this was kind of something that occurred anecdotally. And so he decided, well, I'm going to actually actively infect some folks with um, cowpox and then see if that protects them from smallpox. So he took disease material from, from some, um,
0: pustules, fustules, or, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, from some pustules on the hands of a dairy maid. And he inoculated his son and the neighbor boy with that material. Now, if you know anything about aseptic technique in modern medicine, you're maybe already horrified by the fact that he's taking disease material from one human being like, you know, body fluids from one human being and, and sticking them in another. And we'll talk, you know a little bit more why that's a problem in just a second but so he inoculated his son and the neighbor boy and then he challenged the neighbor boy by exposing him directly to smallpox so he took material from a smallpox scab and scraped it into the neighbor boy's skin i think the neighbor boy was about eight at the time so you imagine doing this on an eight-year-old eight-year-old kid The neighbor boy did not develop smallpox. At least he did not develop clinical symptoms of smallpox. And everybody decided that this whole vaccination thing was a great idea because smallpox was a was a big deal. I mean, um, it was pretty lethal in England at the time that uh, Jenner was doing these things and people were already doing other kinds of crazy things to sort of give themselves controlled cases of smallpox, if you will, thinking that, oh, if I'm in good health and the doctor introduces this directly and I'm directly under his care, then maybe I'll survive it. So people were willing to do some really kind of crazy things to try to, to mitigate the severity of this disease. So it's not uh, terribly surprising that it caught on, but it was based on an end value originally of one individual. So, so this one little boy didn't contract smallpox and, you know, therefore, you know, vaccination was considered to be protective. What most people don't know about the history of vaccination is that when they started doing mandatory smallpox vaccination in England shortly after Jenner came up with this idea, that it actually caused smallpox outbreaks because they were still transferring things person to person and they weren't making the vaccines in a sort of sterile, aseptic way. And you also then had an increase in the incidence of syphilis among infants even, who obviously normally wouldn't contract the disease, you had an increase in tuberculosis. And actually, Jenner's son and the neighbor boy both died of tuberculosis in their early 20s, which they probably contracted from the vaccination experiments. And then you also had a number of vaccine injuries, where people would actually just develop sort of whole system severe reactions to this process. So this is uh, all of the things that, you know, we've seen sort of that are controversial about vaccination were controversial about vaccination in the beginning, uh, in terms of its safety and its advocacy.
0: So have you ever seen this video? Maybe you have, there's nothing to do with vaccines, but it's a famous YouTube video about wolves and Yellowstone park and the deer there. Does that ring a bell?
1: I'm familiar with the scenario, but I don't think I've seen the video.
0: It's like a four minute video. It's amazing. But basically what happens is the rivers are drying up. Things are happening to the trees. The, because the rivers are drying up, the trees are trying to find land. They have nowhere for their roots. Things are just being destroyed they decided eventually to actually introduce the wolf population back. Mm -hmm. It actually made the whole park and the river system heal because it took care of the the deer population, whatever. Anyway, it reminds me of that when that was something I learned years ago in school is kind of be careful what you do to an ecosystem. Right. And it reminds me what you're saying is, okay, you can do one thing, but you're going to have seven other side effects that might be even more deadly because you get rid of something you thought was bad.
1: Right. Right. And, And that's, you've kind of actually like seriously hit on the core of the problem with you know sort of keeping vaccination as a modern medical paradigm the body is an ecosystem and we know this now we know that there's about as many bacterial cells living in and on your body as there are human cells that constitute your body wow. um yeah it's pretty wild and that forms a, like a whole ecosystem and we know now so much more about how if your body's microbiome so that the collection of all these microbes is out of whack that can cause all kinds of problems everything from irritable bowel syndrome to even, you know, potentially things like depression and anxiety, because the whole system is just kind of thrown off. And so when you're talking about modulating the immune system, the immune system is what is in charge of keeping this microbiome kind of all in check. And the microbiome gives the immune system feedback. And so if it gets out of whack, you actually sort of create this positive feedback loop where the microbiome is kind of giving messages to the immune system to not regulate it properly. So then it's not regulated properly, and it gets more out of whack, and it just kind of feeds back on itself. In that way. And so there's a really powerful relationship between the body ecology and the immune system. And if you're going to take the immune system and expose it to diseases in a very unnatural way, because the, the modern vaccine schedule is extremely unnatural, you might get the six or seven or eight or nine diseases in one doctor's visit. You know, if you get yep. the MMR and the Varivax and the, and the DTAP and the oral polio, and that's eight right there. And that could be given to a child all at the same time. But your body's not designed to fight eight extremely different diseases all at one time. And that sort of creates this maelstrom on your immune system. And, and we don't know what all the downstream effects of that are. And we do know there's, there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that actually having natural infections is protective against potential health problems later in life, even things like cancer. But we're not really entirely sure of how the problems that we're causing by activating your immune system in these very unnatural ways that then later, you know, how is that going to affect your microbiome? How is that going to affect your mental health? How is that going to affect, are the streams going to dry up and the trees stop growing, you know?
0: Yeah, and that's... um. For people who are skeptical about vaccines but still think there's a place for it often they 'll do the delayed vaccination yes. because they're they kind of i I have four little kids, and we've changed our opinion greatly we never thought about this, but in the mm-hmm. last couple of kids i'm thinking how many like how many shots are you doing right now I mean right. the kid's, right. like this big you know right. so it made me really think, and that 's one of the reasons why I found a lot of the stuff you 've done and whatever and it's been very helpful but it is scary i mean you know especially with um That whole thing that's going around right now, that respiratory thing. (laughs) Obviously, there's a vaccine to deal with that and people get touchy about it. Okay, I get it. But it's really made a lot of people think about the safety of it. And we're seeing a lot of injuries come out. And it is interesting because up until now, anyone who was skeptical at all was called, you know, like an anti-vaxxer or whatever.
1: Right, so you're um, sort of labeled as a medical heretic, and, oh, yeah. and, you know, you're basing your information off of anecdotes. Well, anecdotes, you know, aren't the same as research studies, but that doesn't mean that the effects you're seeing aren't real.
0: The same thing in law. People will say, well, that, that evidence is, like, circumstantial. And then when you actually talk to criminal lawyers, most cases right. are actually kind of circumstantial. Right. You very rarely actually find a smoking gun, but you find a picture of the guy with the smoking gun. You know, like, this right. right. is the best you can do. Mm-hmm. Good. So you also write in your book that not all vaccinations are created equal. What's that about?
1: (laughs) So that was uh, my attempts to explain the the wide variety of vaccines that are available and how that kind of affects decisions to vaccinate, possible side effects, health outcomes, things like that. So there's there's basically three types of vaccines prior to the respiratory illness that's currently circulating around. Um, Now there's a couple more. But uh, the three historical types of vaccines were live attenuated, which means you have an actual disease that can continue to replicate in your body, but you've weakened it so that it it's not as pathogenic anymore. It's not going to actually cause disease in the body. Either it, it can't produce a toxin or it just can't replicate fast enough to give you disease, something like that. Um And then you have killed or inactivated vaccines. These are completely inactive particles that then are injected into the body, but they're whole viruses, instead of just a part of the virus, and so then you have the third category, which is the subunit vaccines, where you just take a piece of the virus and you inject that into the body, and it's sort of like, I kind of think of it as when you show the dog a guy's sock and you tell him to go track down the guy. You know, you're giving your immune system the scent of the virus, if you will, um, so that next time it can recognize it a little bit better. But now we also have mRNA vaccines and viral vector vaccines. And so I don't want to go too much into current events unless you want me to. No, we'll but, stay away uh, from that for now. We'll just uh, but uh but yeah people I, I think it's important that people understand that these technologies have been in development for a long time, but there have not been any FDA approved candidate vaccines that use either one of these technologies other than one viral vector vaccine. I believe it's for Ebola um it's either Ebola or Zika. So so this has been you know, it, it, people sort of throw this out as like a comforting thing that like, oh, we've been researching this stuff for a yeah. long time. But the inverse is, of that is we've been researching it for a long time and it hasn't worked yet. Right. <laughs> um, so so people just, I think, kind of need to be aware of that.
0: Well, and they've been researching a lot of things for a long time. It doesn't mean right. it's good. There's right. a lot of things you wouldn't want to deal with. So that brings me to a, a perfect segue. From what you're saying, basically, the idea behind vaccination is Give the person a little bit of sickness or a version of the sickness, and then the body gets good at fighting it so they can learn how to fight it without getting ill to the point where they die. Okay, makes sense, generally sure. speaking. Mm-hmm. But, but you say that vaccination and immunity are not equivalent. So what's that about?
1: Right. You kind of touched on some of the points sort of a, a little earlier in the interview about this that are important when you're receiving a vaccine, you're not actually receiving the real pathogen. And so it doesn't behave in the same way in your body. And the immunity that you receive is of shorter duration. Generally speaking, the natural immunity is what we've seen. And then also, because you're you're exciting your immune system basically in the wrong place. So we don't we don't think of we think of our, you know, body as being, you know, our body and it's sort of holistic and our immune system is kind of You know, this amorphous thing that's that's everywhere and it it operates the same in all parts of our our tissues, but it actually doesn't. And so if you are exposed to a pathogen that you normally would encounter through an oral route, but instead I inject you in your arm, you have activated a different component of your immune system and you've activated it in a different way. And so the response that you're going to get is actually not going to be the same as if you were exposed to the the wild type virus. And so this is another thing I don't think people consider frequently is most of the stuff that you contract, you're contracting through an oral or respiratory route. Most is, you know, unless you get the nasal flu vaccine, which one year it was only 3% effective. Um, so I don't recommend that one. Oh my. Um, yeah, they pulled it for a couple of years. The FDA pulled the approval for a couple of years, but then they gave it back. I'm not really sure why. But uh, so, so, you know, unless you're taking an, an oral, and oh, and the oral polio vaccine, which is no longer available in the U.S., actually can give you polio. So there, there's some problem with, doing uh oral delivery of vaccines and this is kind of what got me interested in vaccination to begin with i was actually when i was in high school there was uh, a program at the danforth center to try to develop edible vaccines so that you could eat a banana and be vaccinated for smallpox instead of you know having to get stuck with a needle and i didn't like needles so this sounded like a great idea but uh it turns out that there's a couple there were two problems with that And, and one was um They couldn't standardize the dosage so that when you when you're genetically modifying an organism, you can't really standardize how much protein it's going to produce. And so that's another problem with mRNA vaccines is, you know, we're sticking this genetic information into you and we don't really know actually how many of your cells are going to pick it up and how much protein they're going to produce when they do pick it up and how quickly it's going to degrade and all those sorts of things. So that was a problem with those vaccines. But then also there's a problem with oral administration of vaccines in some cases because it doesn't give you an antibody titer. That you would expect in terms of checking for you know the validity of the immunity, and so people kind of abandon it because they say well it's it's not actually working, but that could segue us into another part of the book where I talk about how antibodies maybe aren't the best measure of sure, yeah, tell yeah, either else about so. that. Right. So this also kind of touches on the history of vaccination. People, I don't think, realize that the antibody hypothesis is 150 years old and it's never actually been experimentally verified. Oh, wow. Um, so we know that antibodies are a part of your immune system. And obviously, they're an important part and they're extremely powerful because they actually also mediate you know, autoimmune disease and in some cases, some aspects of allergy. So they can be really, really bad if they get out of control. But antibodies are only one molecule in your immune system. You know, there's also cytokines, there's interleukins, there's T cells that also produce, have all the different kinds of functions, natural killer cells. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but your audience is isoclative. Well, T
0: cells, T cells have been coming up a lot recently with respiratory illness. People are talking yes. about T cells because it's all about antibodies. And they said, no, what about T cells? So,
1: yeah. Yes. So right. So the the focus in vaccination is on eliciting <laughs> an antibody response. So you've literally kind of taken this whole network of things. It's precisely balanced and intercoordinated. And you can use the ecology analogy here too. You mm-hmm. know, like you plucked the wolves out of Yellowstone, and that kind of affected the whole network. Well, if you pluck the antibodies out of the immune system, or over, you know, sort of this is sort of the reverse. You're overactivating the antibodies in the immune system that affects the whole network of things and how everything kind of is balanced out and, and goes about, you know, the, how the immune system goes about doing its job. But the hypothesis was originally based on some studies that were done with diphtheria and tetanus and diphtheria and tetanus are both caused by pathogens that produce toxins. And when you have a pathogen that produces a toxin and you have an antibody that binds that toxin, you end up neutralizing the toxins so that you don't get the negative effects of the disease so much. And when you're doing your experiments with toxin producing bacteria, you're going to sort of de facto see that, well, antibodies are really, really, really important because antibodies are really important when you have a toxin producing bacteria. Antibodies are maybe not the most important thing for some of these other diseases that we're vaccinating for.
0: Yeah. It's Um, funny. It's funny. It sounds like comic book stuff. Like you grow up watching or reading like, you know that the, the doctor is making the potion or whatever, and it's like, oh, it's going to give him antibodies. Everybody thinks antibodies will cure everything, so that's right. That.
1: Yeah. yeah, and that's that's actually they won't cure everything. And in, in fact, another thing that people don't realize about antibodies is that most autoimmune diseases. And so, so when you you think about autoimmune disease, most people don't have a super great familiarity with that either because they'll they're familiar with diabetes, they're familiar with MS, they're familiar mm. with lupus, they're familiar with rheumatoid arthritis. They're familiar with Graves' disease, you know, maybe as individual things. And we think of all these things as very different because if I'm diabetic, you know, I have to pay very close attention to my blood sugar or I could die, you know, and it affects my pancreas. If I, if I have MS, it's a neurological problem. It's affecting the myelin on my nerves, and I have a host of other symptoms. Sugar doesn't bother me, you know. So people think of those as very different diseases. They're actually not. Right. Um, they're very similar diseases, and they're very similar diseases because the pathologies mediated in the same way. It's your own body failing to recognize itself and actually producing an immune response to self. And guess what mediates that immune response? It's the antibodies. Okay. Most, most, uh, if not, I'm not going to say all because I, I haven't looked at every single autoimmune disease, but most, if not all autoimmune diseases are mediated by antibodies and they're mediated by antibodies against your own tissues.
0: So is it fair to say there might be a link between autoimmune disease and the proliferance of vaccination?
1: I am convinced there is a link.
0: Cause that's, yeah. that's something that, you know, I'm 32. Okay. So I, I uh-huh. autoimmune disease is not something I really heard about as a kid. And I've looked at how much more vaccination has been happening in the last 40 years or so. hmm. And it's scary. I mean, it's a yeah. common thing, and I've I've taught thing. for years in high school, and you would hear about kids coming with autoimmune, autoimmune, and autoimmune. I'm thinking, how did it all this come from? But right, well, it's
1: it's not it's not entirely you know new. I right. have a, a, a long family history of vaccination or not vaccination, <laughs> <laughs> autoimmune disease. Right, a long family history of autoimmune disease. We did vaccinate too, but yeah. um, my parents did, but um, my uh, mother's aunt passed away from MS okay. um, when my mother was a kid. So this would have been in the, the 60s or 70s. So MS was not unheard of back then. And so and uh, two of her sisters also have autoimmune conditions. Several of my siblings have autoimmune conditions. So this is, this runs very strongly in my family. So this is a, a, another thing that just kind of providentially I happened to have been interested in mm-hmm. that sort of dovetailed here with vaccination. You know, I had the perspective of already kind of understanding how this worked at a mechanistic level you know, sort of better than your average, you know, Joe on the street. And when I started reading the things about the way that vaccination was working and people started making the connection between autoimmunity and vaccines, it it made perfect sense to me from a, a mechanistic perspective, how that could work out.
0: So it sounds to me, we've talked about ecology a little bit, and it made me think with this vaccination paradigm, there's a problem and they're thinking, well, we can manipulate the body in some way in order to get rid of this problem. And then we use already the analogy of the wolves. But it made me think uh, with the whole plastic straw thing and the metal straw thing, there's a point to this. I was in a grocery store and I'm I'm not an environmentalist. I think conservation is, is fine. But anyway, I'm in a store and there's this package of uh, metal straws. And it's three straws in a plastic package. And I remember thinking like, so I go to the drive through and I'm sitting in my car and I get the paper straw that falls apart in your mouth. And at the store, I can buy the metal one. And I'm thinking what did you do with all the plastic straws that you already had? Cause there was probably millions of them. Um, And you know that you have to make the metal straws in a factory that uses fossil fuels. And then you have to ship them in the, like, I'm just thinking they want to save the environment, but they end up harming it more because they can't just realize, perhaps we should just go back to the basics. Just use a cup. (laughs) You don't have to use a straw (laughs) at all. So with the vaccinations, okay, fine. There's legitimate reasons why I understand people arrive at these conclusions, but, Maybe instead of adding 60 things to a body, why don't you just sort of make the body itself healthier because you're taking risks either way. And that made me think, as I'm reading your book, I had seen you, did you do the talk or did Hugh Owen do the talk on um, the Darwinian effect on medicine of Darwinian evolution?
1: So Hugh did the article and I did the talk. Okay. Yeah.
0: And that, and you went over a lot of stuff, which I'll give you a chance to get in here, but. Basically, there is a difference if we look at the world between a creation providence framework or an evolutionary framework. That actually has something to do with the vaccination debate. Can you speak to that?
1: Sure. There's basically sort of two ways to look at man kind of that are are popular currently in our day. And one is that, you know, man came about through evolutionary processes. So we had apes as our ancestors and and microbes as their ancestors. And everything is kind of just like cobbled together and a result of random chance. Yeah. yeah you're you're laughing, so I,
0: <laughs> it makes so much sense think about, you actually think about
1: it right, yeah, well, I mean this talk is technically about vaccination, but one of the things that really like sort of lit up the switchboard for me on this whole thing was the fact that you know if you hold some kind of theistic evolution where you're like, okay, yeah, uh, God made the body of man from the body of an ape, like you have to posit that Adam was conceived in the womb of an irrational animal, yeah. like that's disgusting, it's gross um. Yeah. So just anybody with sort of a natural level of piety is going to sort of be like, wait, like, that sounds wrong. Um, so you're right. I mean, it just it, it, the, the whole paradigm doesn't really make a lot of sense. And especially when I end up talking to evolutionary biologists, you know, my professors, uh, colleagues, things like that. They want to be able to eradicate purposiveness because, you know, you have to if you have this. You know, sort of random mechanism of mutation that's giving rise to everything and all the variety and everything that exists. But they can't because it's so integral to understanding biology to understand that, that function follows form, that the way that something is shaped, even at a molecular level, is going to determine the way that it functions. And so for years, I thought and argued that it makes much more sense to sort of think that that things are shaped the same and and DNA codes for the same sort of things, because in order for you to survive in a world that has oxygen in it, you need to be able to deal with oxygen, which is a, you know, potentially highly reactive species. And you need to have the same shaped protein as the bacteria and the banana and the chimpanzee that also all have to deal with oxygen. So the other way of looking at things is that, God did what he said he did and yeah. he created everything with a purpose. Yeah. You know, he put the world together. He knew what he was doing and any damages that we see, because we do see damage. We see mutations. We see, you know, so what I would call devolution mm-hmm. um, from perfection because of the fall. So all of that stuff entered, entered into the world with the fall. So wh- how does this relate to medicine? Why does this matter? Well, if you look at man as this random assemblage of parts, then i can go into man i can take a little part i can tweak it and i can expect that it's really not going to affect the whole that much because this is how evolution has always worked right and i'm smarter than evolution so as a man i can go in the, which which like how do you like the what is it the, the principle of sufficient reason like you can't give rise to something that's greater than you are
0: oh yeah so, sufficient causality
1: yeah sufficient yes. causality thank you yeah. Yeah, so we're smarter than than what created us. It doesn't make any sense. Natural selection, yeah. right? So we can go in and intelligently manipulate things in man. You know, we yeah. can take out his tonsils because he doesn't really need those. Turns out he actually does. Um yeah. <laughs> we can go in and and give him a disease and train his immune system properly so that he won't actually die when he's faced with these diseases. You know, all of these sorts of things and the, the whole transhumanism movement is also I mean I don't I don't want to get too much into the weeds with that because it's that's <laughs> uh Not my thing, but that's kind of the mindset behind all of that, right? If you think of man as created by God, as designed by God, as made as an integral whole, then you have to approach medicine differently than we do in our current day. You have to look at man as a whole, and you also have to understand that the soul is the form of the body. And so what you're doing in your spiritual life actually affects your physical health. And you start with that, and then you start with saying, okay, something's going wrong you know, what's actually causing that versus kind of the the symptomatic treatment or like, I'll just isolate that one thing. And I can speak to how badly this system works because, you know, I told you I I injured my ankle and I was seeing a, a doctor who dealt, you know, specifically with feet and ankles. He looked at what was going on in the context of just my foot and ankle and not the whole rest of my body. And he misdiagnosed me or misdiagnosing me, one of the two, and I still can't walk properly two years later. You know, most people can't say that or won't say that after an ankle injury. But, you know, when you're looking at at just... And I was trying to explain, you know, but there's these other things that are seem to be going wrong and they seem to be connected and and they just sort of scratched their heads and looked at me and said, well, I don't understand why you have that particular constellation of problems. Well, clearly there was a reason, (laughs) you know, and clearly if it had been dealt with correctly, I would be walking normally today, but it wasn't because everything was kind of treated in isolation and it wasn't, you didn't look at the whole. So when you're looking at man as a created whole, you end up with a more holistic medicine and, and then you also end up with understanding like if this is going on in the body, then there's a purpose. There's a reason there is kind of something going on here that I don't understand. It requires a humility that I think is absent in most scientists and and doctors of our day as well to say, I don't understand what's here, but I know there must be something and I'm going to figure it out, which is you know how Harvey figured out circulation um, versus saying there's something here and I don't understand what it is. So I'm just going to say that it doesn't actually matter. It's a useless evolutionary leftover, you know, which is how we ended up having tens of thousands of excess tonsillectomies per year. I think it was actually maybe hundreds of thousands of excess tonsillectomies per year that weren't really necessary that led to, you know, thousands of deaths and many, many injuries as well that were just completely unnecessary because we, we looked at the body. We said, there's a thing that I don't understand the function of. I'm just going to take it out and call it good and move on. And so vaccination fits into all of this because, you know, as we've said, you're taking one little piece of the immune system. You're trying to manipulate that one little piece. You're trying to, to think that you're smarter than the body. You can do all of these things that are, are kind of unnatural, like, you know, exposing yourself to the pathogen through the wrong route, exposing yourself to multiple pathogens at one time, you know, adding all this aluminum in there that, you know, does who knows what to the central nervous system. And it's just kind of piecemeal with all, all of this other bad medicine that's based on evolution.
0: You know, you, you think, even somebody who works with, like, mecha- basic cars, they'll know that they can't just take a saw and just pull a piece out of the engine. It's going to work fine. You know, I mean, you can you can ride a little bit with something being broken, but eventually the whole thing will break. It sounds like a similar thing happens with the right. human body. Right. Um, yeah. So that leads me to, you have a part in your book about trading one disease for another. And I was reading last night, I was reading, the, we touched on autoimmunity, but I was reading the part on allergies And I found that really fascinating, especially with, you know, all, I mean, everyone has a peanut allergy nowadays. Everybody has an allergy, you know, anaphylactic something. So what's the link between that and vaccinations?
1: So there's a much stronger similarity between the immunity that you get, I shouldn't say the immunity that you get, the reaction that you get from a vaccine and the, the mediation of an allergy than there is between natural immunity and the reaction you get from a vaccine. When, you're exposed, so this this goes back to the the different types of vaccines, right? So when you're exposed to a subunit vaccine, that's kind of the the least effective. It's going to to produce the least robust immune response. So what scientists have done is they've included things in these vaccines called adjuvants, which is based on a Latin word meaning helper. They're things that can cause you to have a more robust immune response. Well, these adjuvants are extremely powerful, and they're also potentially neurotoxic because they all contain aluminum. But they cause a much, much, much more robust immune response. Now they're non-specific, so I can use the same adjuvant in a vaccine for the current respiratory illness as I use in a vaccine for, you know, HPV, as I use in a vaccine for—I I don't remember all which ones are subunit vaccines off the top of my head—but as I use in any other subunit vaccine for any other disease, it doesn't—it doesn't matter what disease I can use the same adjuvants. So it doesn't matter what foreign particle is in your body at the moment that you're vaccinated, you can actually produce an immune response to it. And we have, you know, I referenced the microbiome earlier, you know, we've had, I mean, due to just the the massive consumption of processed foods due to massive overuse of antibiotics due to things like, you know, DDT, which is no longer legal, but you know, your microbiome, was actually affected by your mother and hers was affected by her mother and hers was affected by her mother. So this, this damage to our, our microbiome and to our gut goes back, you know, generations at this point. And so many people have gut problems. If you have what's called leaky gut, whatever you're eating, some of it can actually pass through the walls of your intestine and get, gets into your bloodstream whole and intact. And that gets identified by your immune system as that's not me. That is something foreign. Your immune system is designed to attack whatever is not you, whatever is foreign. And so if, if there's something in some of these vaccines, like the polyethylene glycol, which is in the current vaccines that are being pushed on us, um, it's highly allergenic. So you can actually develop a life threatening allergic reaction to the vaccine itself because it contains this highly allergenic component and mRNA actually is works by itself kind of like an adjuvant, it stimulates this really over overactive immune response because your body recognizes that if mRNA is floating around, that probably means I have a virus and that's really bad. So you, now you're reacting to the polyethylene glycol as well. Now your body's been sensitized to that, so you've sort of mounted an, an immune response to it. And then, of course, the next time you're exposed, you're going to have a worse reaction. Well, now think about this with the food, right? If you get sensitized to some sort of food particle during vaccination and you're exposed to that food the next time and you're exposed to the food again, like your body over time gradually ramps up its immune response and you can end up with severely life-threatening allergies.
0: It's funny when you talk to someone of an older generation and, you know, again, being a teacher, I mean, you know, you can't have peanut butter in the cafeteria or something like that. That's fine. I mean, you don't want to kill anybody. If it's a real problem, it's a real problem. Right. But then you talk to... When we were kids... That
1: wasn't a thing. That wasn't a problem, you wasn't know. And thing. I went to I went to you know big public schools, and that wasn't a problem. Same, you know?
0: yeah, me the same. It's uh, it's remarkable. Wow, that's actually that's a, that's hard for parents of young children to hear. <laughs> it is, yeah,
1: it is. And there's also just the problem of like it being delivered hypodermically because you know it's all getting injected directly into your bloodstream. Um, sure. Because I mean, allergies were pretty much unknown prior to the invention of the hypodermic needle. They were just not. When was that? Reported, not even hay fever. I'm sorry.
0: When was that? Like what around what time? Um, I
1: think it was the 1850s-ish.
0: Okay. A lot of this stuff is around. I mean, a lot of it really is. Actually, this leads to another question. A lot of this stuff is around industrial revolution, when obviously you have people just flooding the cities. And um obviously, certain things have been good developments, but the poverty that was thrown on parts of Europe really was never seen before, especially in the cities. Mm-hmm. So diets went down. Just, just hygiene was bad. I've heard from people that if you look at basically when they said they started to beat in their minds, these diseases with vaccinations, in fact, it was a lot of other things were changing as well. So hygiene was changing, general medical care was getting better. What what about that?
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And the the, the best way that that's been documented that I've come across is, is Dr. Suzanne Humphrey's book, Dissolving Illusions. And the first several <laughs> chapters of her book, she lays out you know, just exactly what the conditions were. You know, prior to vaccination, in terms of the poverty, the crowding, the unsanitary conditions, the inability to get good food, long working hours, too. None of the labor laws had been passed yet, so people would be working 14 hour days in really dangerous conditions, really stressful conditions, mines or factories or things like that. Um, There were no child labor laws, so you would have kids doing these things. There was also uh, a tremendous problem with something called puparial fever or childbed fever. So women would die a lot more frequently during childbirth. And, you know, since since we know that there's a difference between men and women, which could also potentially get this video banned from YouTube. Careful. Um, uh, <laughs> the, um, the care that little children receive from a dad who's working 14, 16-hour days is, is going to be very different than the care that the children would receive if their mother was still alive. This one thing that I hadn't really seen sort of addressed until I read Dr. Humphrey's book, where she said, you know, the fact that so many women were dying – during childbirth, but, you know, leaving other young children behind severely, you know, that increased the childhood mortality rate mm. because the kids just did not, you know, in, in all of these other conditions, you know, no sanitation, not enough good food. You're going to end up with more child death because they just, you were not be able to be taken care of.
0: You know, it, it sounds a lot like what we're going through right now when this whole thing started, this whole two weeks to slow the spread, huh. we're in month 10. I'm living in the People's Republic of uh, Ontario right now, I think. it's a better name for it. But yeah. you would think people were talking about cooties. I mean, like, if it was this idea that if you just, like, touched a piece of it, you're all going to die. And right. when you tell me the story about how holistic the unhealth was of the people, right. it wasn't just about a virus. It was about the fact that the people were already very weak. Right. And ironically, today, we have access to all of these cures and all of these cares and all this. I mean, you can get fresh blueberries in the middle of january if you want right. and all your vitamins you can ever want but people are petrified as if they sort of touch this thing mm-hmm. they're all just going to drop dead so all that considered what are the ethics of because people are talking about vaccines right now obviously mm-hmm. but then there's a crowd who's talking about herd immunity and the people that say that herd immunity is wrong they say oh what do you want millions of people to drop dead in the street just so you don't have to get a vaccine i mean that's kind of the idea right Right. right. So what's the idea of herd immunity? What are the ethics of it? So
1: herd immunity is basically the idea that once a sufficient number of individuals in the population have contracted the disease or have immunity to the disease, then, you know, say if you're sick and you walk into a room and you sneeze and nine out of the 10 people in the room are already immune, the likelihood of you passing that disease on is fairly low. If you walk into the room and sneeze and nobody's had the disease, then the likelihood of that disease getting passed on is high. And I think that's where a lot of the panic came at the beginning of all this, because it was said that this was a novel coronavirus. Ah. So since it was novel, it was brand new. There was sort of this assumption on everybody's part that, well, it's that room full of people. Nobody has any immune competence to this at all. But there's been researchers and doctors who've come out and said, actually, I think the herd immunity for this thing is already at 50%-ish in the population before we were even exposed. Well, how is that? Well, there are other viruses in the same family that routinely infect human beings. There are four of them, and they cause common cold or flu-like symptoms, and you've probably, you know, potentially had one of them. And if you've had one of them, then you might possibly have some cross-reactivity to the one that's currently in circulation because your immune system is actually, you know, smart enough to be able to do that. (laughs) And so, some people want to argue that vaccination is good because you do get some cross-reactivity with vaccines as well. But you also have the problem sometimes of when you, you vaccinate for one thing, your immune system can actually—it's called original antigenic sin, which is just kind of really a, wow. Yeah, yeah. The scientists aren't you know completely illiterate about uh, matters of faith. <laughs> um, but you, if you are exposed to to one particular strain, say of the flu. And the strain of the flu that you encounter the next year is sort of similar to that, but not similar enough that your immune system can actually mount an effective response to it. Your immune system will mount a memory response because it's similar enough that it triggers it, but it's not similar enough that it can take it out. So you'll actually have worse flu than if Uh if you hadn't had the original flu. So it's like... If it's different enough, you'll amount a brand new re- immune response. If it's similar enough, you'll neutralize it. If it's kind of over here, halfway between, you might, you know, start a memory response, but your memory response is going off this way and the bad guy's over here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can improperly prime your immune system too with vaccines. And actually the flu vaccine is kind of a huge culprit for that. And there's some concern that the current virus may be kind of a culprit for that as well. Uh, that, course, remains to be seen because, you know, there's not been a whole lot of safety testing done. And they've been quietly destroying the placebo group by vaccinating them. So we don't really know what the long term effects of this are going to be or how we're going to compare them. I guess they could compare them to us, right? Because we haven't been vaccinated.
0: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, man. Um, OK, this leads me to the last thing I want to talk about, and it's the most sensitive. So for anybody watching, if you have children around, leave the room. Vaccines and abortion. We're basically the idea is generally speaking, and we're not going to. There's a whole robust teaching on the on the morality of this, and there are better people than me to talk about that. So look up. There's very good priests online that talk about it. I believe Lifesite is doing a conference or something, and they'll probably have a, a robust teaching on that from someone who knows what they're talking about. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, the idea of the uh, relationship between abortion and vaccines is that 50 years ago, 60 years ago, there was one abortion that took place somewhere, and they've basically cultivated this sort of foundational something or other from it, and they've been using it ever since. But that's not the case, is it?
1: No, that's not the case at all. So there's a number of things wrong with that narrative. One is that it was one abortion. It was not one abortion. Just for the rubella component of the MMR vaccine, which is one of the abortion-tainted vaccines, there were 99 separate abortions. So, oh, yeah, and that was to obtain the virus and then to obtain the cell line that the virus is cultured in. So, you know, we really, as Catholics, should say one murder is sufficient. You know, one grave sin is sufficient to send you to hell. So one abortion is sufficient to make the vaccine unethical, but it wasn't just one abortion. It was, you know, close to a hundred, and that's just for one vaccine. So there are multiple aborted fetal cell lines that are in use in vaccines and other therapeutic agents as well right now. I guess I shouldn't say other therapeutic because vaccines aren't used therapeutically generally. So other, other medical interventions that, uh, that are in use now. And the most recent one was developed in 2015. So this is not a problem that was confined to the 1960s and 1970s. And and we made these cell lines and they're just immortal. They'll last forever. They, you know, we can just keep using them. These cell lines actually senesce. And one of the reasons that aborted fetal cells are used instead of adult cells is because they've got a longer lifespan than adult cells would have. So you develop a cell line and it's going to replicate more times if you develop it from a, a very young individual versus developing it from you or me. That's, you know, one of the sort of intellectual justifications that's used. Obviously, it's still not moral. Right. Um, and there are moral ways to get very young cells. You know, you can get them from umbilical cords, um, things like that. So it's not necessary to do this even for that reason. But that's one of the justifications that's offered for it. But even with that in place, the cell line will eventually senesce, will eventually get older, will eventually die. Well, in vaccine research there's not like some standard recipe for developing a vaccine. And this is why we don't have vaccines to everything. And, you know, thanks be to God, we don't have vaccines to everything because it would be a total mess, but you know, there's no standard recipe. So a lot of what ends up getting done is people will just kind of throw things at the wall and see what sticks. Well, if somebody else has developed a good vaccine in a specific cell line, that cell line is more likely to get used again for later vaccines, right? So somebody developed a vaccine in PERC6, and so that got used again for vaccines or MRC5 or some of these other cell lines. So then as these cell lines get old, people who are still doing vaccine research are saying, oh, we need a cell line that's like that cell line. So we need an electively aborted baby of the same sex and roughly the same age. So in some cases, you know, when they're they're collecting, you know, aborted fetal tissue, they'll actually encourage the woman to stay pregnant a little longer so that the tissue can be Ready for what they're wanting to do with it. Um, yeah, it's sick. Whoa. Um, yeah, it's, it's just sick. I mean, all of this stuff has been published on Children of God for Life for a really long time. And nobody's been, you know, nobody's been doing their homework because, you know, there's been documents that have come out and said, well, you can still receive the vaccine as long as you protest. But, you know, where's, where's the protest?
0: It's, um, Lord have mercy because it, it it just makes me think of the old Testament. You know, you commit a grave sin and your whole civilization falls apart. Right. How is this any different? I mean,
1: right. you're, You're building a medical intervention on the back of grave sin. And the other thing people don't realize is that these were, it wasn't like this was some sort of, well, the woman was having the abortion anyway. And so we'll make some good come out of it. Like these researchers were actively encouraging women to abort their children and they were complicit in pressuring that, especially to get the virus for the, the rubella. So it's like, oh, you've been exposed to rubella, ma'am. Well, um, your baby's likely to develop congenital rubella syndrome. You really you should do an abortion, and we'd like to, you know, dissect the fetus to see if we can have, uh get this virus out of it. You know, and they didn't need to do that either, because you know how they got the, the virus for it? So there's an ethical rubella vaccine that's manufactured in Japan. You know they got the virus for that?
0: Is it sweet potato?
1: No, they swabbed oh. some kid's nose who was sick. <laughs> that's all they had to do.
0: It's just, uh it's remarkable. And, you know, it goes back to everything we're going through right now. And everybody is, people have forgotten God so much that they don't even, it's not that they're afraid to die. They don't know how to die. Right. If you're afraid to die, it's because either one, you don't think there's a God or two, you might think you're going to hell. That's a good fear. Fix it, you know. Right. But in this case, it's like people, they can't even bring themselves to think that they'll die at a time other than what they had conceived. Mm-hmm. We're sacrificing an entire generation metaphorically insofar as locking them down, but we're sacrificing a generation of children for the elderly. It's a complete reversal of reality. It should be the elderly who have lived, who make the sacrifice, which is historically what you do. I'm only, I'm 32, but in the hierarchy between my children, I would give my life to save my kids. That's just, you know, so you can do that in a non-drastic way. And we see the reverse of that with this vaccine thing where we're basically sacrificing children like it's some sort of pagan ritual in order to appease these gods of virus. And it's just sick.
1: Right. 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 Wow. As you were saying that, I was thinking of just all the psychological damage of the kids who are living through this too.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, with all the masks and the, you know, everything else.
0: Well, we'll leave on a good note. Okay. So rabies vaccine, it works, right? I've heard you say that. That's actually (laughs) one of the good ones.
1: Yes. yes, So some uh, good news about a vaccine. Yes. Everybody, everybody always is like, well, but are there any good vaccines? (laughs) And, and, um, my answer is generally that I don't think that the prophylactic use of vaccines is advisable. So that means you're giving yourself a treatment before you've been exposed to the disease. Okay. You know, I think health is the best prophylaxis. And so so doing what you need to do to be in good health, as we were discussing earlier, eating good food, getting enough sleep, those kinds of things are going to do do you a lot better than a vaccine. And some of the diseases, too, for like, you know, measles, there's ways to treat measles. There's ways to treat whooping cough. You know, some of the others are just very, very harmless. Rabies is not.
0: Yeah, it'll get you.
1: <laughs> if you get bit by a rabid dog and you contract rabies, you will die. That's just kind of how that goes. But rabies has an extremely long incubation period. So, you know, if you get bit Uh in your leg, the virus takes a long time to replicate and a long time to get all the way to your brain, which is when it will kill you. Okay. Okay. If you get bit in your neck, you've got less time, actually, which is interesting. Because normally you'd think, well, your circulatory system Uh is just going to get it, you know, all over you quickly. But that's not how rabies works. So if you get bit by a rabid dog, you should get the rabies vaccine. Because I believe about 30 to 60,000 people a year, roughly, in the U.S. are treated for rabies, and a handful, less than five, die. Right. Um, so obviously, that's a very effective treatment. But people should also know that before you get a rabies vaccine, if possible, you should ask for the one that's ethical. Because yeah. there are some rabies vaccines that are made in aborted fetal cells, and there are uh, rabies vaccines that are not. And, and that information is available on Children of God for Life. I don't remember the names off the top of my head. And if I did, I probably would get them backwards. And then I'd be giving everybody really bad advice. So before you get bit by a rabid dog, (laughs) go check out Children of God for Life and make sure that you know which vaccine is ethical. You know, and of course, if you're in a situation where you're at the doctor's office and you have been bitten by a rabid dog and they only have the unethical version available, this would be an instance of that grave situation where you would not be, you know, violating the moral law to be complicit in the original evil of the creation of the vaccine, yeah. because that's a grave cause. You know, if you're going to die, that is a grave cause. You know, if you're, yeah. if you're going to catch a cold, that's not a grave cause.
0: Yeah. Or another illness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Wonderful. So this has been a wonderful <laughs> interview. Uh, everybody check out this book, Vaccination Catholic Perspective. They can buy this at ColbeCenter.org. Yes. Okay. Anywhere else where we can find your work?
1: No, because we don't sell on Amazon um, because we don't support Amazon. Um, so the only place that you can find the book is is on the Colby Center. You can find some of the other interviews that I've done on Census Fidelium, yep. which is on YouTube. And then, of course, Restoring the Faith. I've got one upcoming for them. And then there's a, a little organization, and it's called Act. I believe the website is call Act NJ. I don't remember if it's.org or.com the young lady who runs as really lovely individual. She's interviewed me a couple of times and um, I'd love to help her get, get that uh, a little bit more recognized.
0: And parishes and bookstores, they can order bulk orders of this, right?
1: Yes, actually. Okay. So we're, I think they can order it for half off. Perfect. Um, yeah. A bookstore can order a bulk order for that.
0: Yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. Perfect. Right now, so. Well, this is good information because there's a lot of priests, in the Novosordo and traditional who are completely well-intentioned and just sort of have bought this idea right. that you got to get vaccinated or not just for this one they're talking about now, but in general. Right. Right. But you present them with good information and they go, well, of course, I'll, I'll look at this because I had no idea. So there's a lot of people right. who are open to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think the Pontifical Academy of Life document that a lot of people sort of throw around and say, you know, well, this gives you permission. And it it definitely, you know, urges vaccination and the Catholic Church supports vaccination. I mean, when you read that document and I address this in the book, it's obvious that the information they were operating under from a biological perspective was simply insufficient. Yeah. You know, so I don't I don't attribute any any malice to to anybody who's, you know, kind of confused about this stuff. Like most people don't have, you know, two years to, to read all this Stuff that nobody has time to read. So. Yeah.
0: And at the Fatima Center, we are all about spreading the truth about the errors of Russia. And if there ever was a mechanism that a government or a healthcare system could use to do nefarious things to a population, it would be something like improper usage of vaccinations. So it fits mm-hmm. right in. Okay, wonderful. Well, one time we're going to have to have you back on to talk about evolutionary theory because we happened. could probably do three and a half hours on that, easy, <laughs> which would be fun for me. So thank you so much for coming. Again, everybody visit and Order this book for your parish, for your friends, family, wherever. Put it on the coffee shop if it's open. Please visit fatima.org and consider a donation. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more information on what's coming up and to get our notifications. Thank you so much, and it's been a pleasure.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you.